Welcome to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we are broadcasting live on, on October 2nd, on October 3rd, that is, from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. This hour, we're going to look at reproductive rights in Florida. The state Supreme Court is deciding sometime this fall about whether it will rule on a law that could lead to abortions being essentially banned in Florida. And our guest this hour, at least for part of the hour, is Amy Weintraub, the Reproductive Rights Program Director for Progress Florida. Welcome back to Tuesday Cafe, Amy. Thank you, Sean. It's great to be here. I'm glad you could join us. So later on in the show, I'm going to play audio from the Florida Supreme Court oral arguments. The reproductive rights advocates say the state's ban on abortions after 15 weeks violates Florida's constitutional protections on privacy. But as we'll hear, several justices seem skeptical of that claim and might allow the 15-week ban to go into effect. And then if that happens, a newer law that restricts abortions after six weeks in Florida would go into effect. So um, we will talk about that, but let's begin by looking today at whether abortion care is still legal today in Florida, Amy. Well, sure, it is. And um, the 15-week abortion law has been allowed to be in effect even as it's making its way through through the courts, the suit against that. So um, it is limited to 15 weeks, but providers throughout the state are, are offering that care to Floridians and people beyond our borders. Has that led to any problems? The fact that if there's someone who's seeking an abortion and they've been pregnant for 15 weeks or longer that they aren't able to get care in Florida? That's right. And it is a huge source of frustration for for care providers, for doctors who have trained you know, for years to offer this care to their patients, people who need to end a pregnancy for a a variety of reasons. And they are now having to arrange for those patients to get to out-of-state, out-of-state care providers at great expense and huge, you know, huge time consumption. Um, And it is, it is a huge issue. And and in fact, I know of at least one Tampa um, doctor who is a, was is an extraordinary OBGYN, and she has actually left the state. And I think that that we're going to see more and more of that. We've heard we've heard that this has happened in other states with restrictive laws around reproductive health care. That it becomes more difficult to retain qualified physicians and to attract them when politicians are involved with what they can and can't do for their patients' health. And you mentioned that there are some Floridians who are having to go to other states to seek health care because of this new law. And But uh, I'm going to look kind of at the flip side of that, and that is that because Florida has not yet at least out, outlawed abortions completely, there are several states in the South that have much more restrictive laws. And so for the last maybe year or whatever it's been, Florida has been a destination for for people in the South who are seeking abortions and can't get it in their home states. So this, if this law goes into effect, the six-week abortion law goes into effect in Florida, it wouldn't just impact people in Florida. That's right. It's a, a lack of access in Florida means a lack of access across the Southeast. Um, other states who will continue being able to provide care will not be able to support the number of patients that will be denied care in Florida. And so that means many, many people will have to continue dangerous pregnancies, um, pregnancies that put themselves at risk 
and pregnancies that are are unintended for for a lot of different reasons. And we're hearing news from Ron DeSantis. He's, of course, the governor of Florida, but also running for for, uh, president, for the Republican nomination for president. And so people around the country have been asking him if he is elected president, what would he do on a national scale for uh, abortion? And he's kind of been putting that question off, but he recently tipped his hands. Let me read from the AP this morning. When Rodney DeSantis said during last week's Republican presidential debate that he would support a federal ban on abortion at 15 weeks of pregnancy, some anti-abortion activists called it the news that they had been waiting months to hear. But DeSantis's campaign downplayed the comment and millions of voters probably missed the moment entirely. DeSantis's pledge came during one of many chaotic exchanges on the debate stage after he, a shouted question from Senator Tim Scott. It was another example of the muddiness that voters are encountering as they seek specifics from Republicans regarding abortion policy. Since the Supreme Court overturned the federal right to abortion, candidates are being pressed on the issue and sometimes stopping short of giving a straight answer. So um, what would you say then about maybe the politics on the national scale of uh, rights to abortion access and how, how it's playing out on the national scale? Well, first of all, regarding Ron DeSantis, I mean, if anyone has any doubt about his position as an extremist on reproductive health. They only need to look at his track record in Florida, gleefully, gleefully signing um, bans on abortion at 15 weeks, then at six weeks, gleefully line item vetoing access to long acting reversible contraceptives that a bipartisan members of the House and the Florida House and the Florida Senate got in the budget multiple years, he line item vetoed that. And that is not abortion, that is birth control. He is he has, has found ways to prevent people from accessing. So it is very, very clear where he stands on this and what a emergency he will put our nation in on when it comes to reproductive health if he was ever to get to a high level in federal government. Um, it is very interesting, of course, as a reproductive rights advocate to watch what's happening on the, you know, on the, on the Republican national stage and to see how they, so, um, you know, they love using reproductive health care as a pawn in their reindeer games. And, you know, they, they, they won't be clear intentionally because they, you know, don't want to look as extreme as they are, but they're all, they're all going to use this as a political pawn to win points, to not lose points. They're all just hedging and, um, I don't have much more to say about that, Sean. It's it's just it's just disgusting, actually. Our guest is Amy Weintraub, Reproductive Rights Program Director for Progress Florida. And this is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And let me talk for a second about some polls that have been done about access to abortions. And I'm reading this from a, a summary that happened in The Guardian. 62% of American adults believe that abortions should be legal in all or most cases. That's according to a 2022 report published by Pew Research Center. A 2020 Ipsos Reuters poll found that 56% of likely voters in Florida believe abortion should be legal in most cases. So given numbers like that, Amy, what would you say about uh, how people feel about uh, access to abortion? Yeah, um, both of those polls were done before the six-week abortion ban passed. And I'll just mention an FAU poll that was done late last year, late last 2022, again, before the six-week abortion ban was passed. 
And, and that found that 67% of Floridians support access to abortion. And we, we have noted that those, the research I have seen has seen an uptick in support since the six week ban passed. I think people didn't really, weren't fully awakened to um, how bad things were gonna get. And that a six week ban is almost an all out ban because people don't realize that they're pregnant until it's at, they're about, they've missed a period and then it's two weeks and oh my gosh. So anyway, um, so on that note, um, I would say that the support for abortion rights is stronger than it's ever been. And that is why we're going for this ballot initiative. And I know we're gonna talk about that in a minute, but the support for it is so good and it is so out of sync with what the decision makers in Tallahassee are doing that um, we, you know, we we do have like a, a real serious societal conflict right now. So, what is this ballot initiative? What does it say? What would it do if it passes? And where does the signature count stand? Sure. So, just the ballot initiative. We, as a reproductive rights movement, see it as the way forward to get a constitutional. A, 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 a constitutional amendment that explicitly states that abortion is accessible to Florida, should be, will be accessible, is accessible to Floridians um, up to the point of viability. And that is what we are hoping to get on the ballot for the November 2024 election. In order to do that, like all ballot initiatives, if people in Florida want it, it thank goodness we have this alternative, by the way, many states don't. But in Florida, citizens can rise up. If the legislature's not addressing it, we can say, let's put the vote to the people. And that's what we're trying to do. In order to do that, we have to get, we have to show the, the division of elections that there is widespread support for that. And they are requiring for anyone to get something on the ballot, nearly 900,000 um, petition forms have to be completed. That's 891,523 to be exact. And so we're working right now to get um, Floridians who care about reproductive rights to complete these petition forms. And I think you were asking how far along are we? Yeah, where do we stand? So we launched in early May. So in just, in just what is that, five months, um, the official tally that is that they've been collected and they've been validated by county supervisors of election um, the official count on the division website, division of elections website is almost 300,000. So that's 298,120 have been collected as of, have been validated as of today. Now we know that we have collected far more, hundreds of thousands more than that. They just have to, they just take a lot of time getting through the validated validation procedure at the county level. And then for the county to report to the state and then it to get posted to the website. So we know we're much farther along, but that number is the one that we could, that's the only official number we have to go by. What's the next goalpost? Is there, in order to get it approved by the Supreme Court, is there a certain level and so forth? Yeah, um, that's correct. It's not just a matter of collecting the petitions. The language that has been put together um, by our movement, movement leaders and, you know, constitutional law experts and other, you know, great thinkers, has to be approved by the Supreme Court because ballot measures in Florida, they can't just be anything. Someone happens to, you know, cobble together. It has to meet certain language standards. It can only be about one thing. It can't be a multi-issue um, um, item. So 
the Supreme Court must review it. And in order for the Supreme Court to begin its review, folks, uh, a certain number of signatures have to be collected because they're not going to review just anything, right? They have to see a certain level of report and um, cer certain level of support. And so that number is 222,881. So we, since we've collected 298, we've thousand, we've more than met that. So that review um, has begun. I want to remind people that our guest is Amy Weintraub, the Reproductive Rights Program Director for Progress Florida. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And I want to hear what our listeners have to say about it. We'll be taking calls and texts and emails throughout the hour. You can email us at dj at wmnf.org. You can text 813-433-0885, or you can call 813-239-9663. And we're broadcasting live here on October 3rd, 2023. And we, we do have a, a call that has come in from Simon in Lakeland. Let's see if we can get Simon on the air for a quick question. Hi, Simon, what's your question? Hi, good morning. Uh, you know, the, the premise of the discussion is about rights. Uh, rights of the female, the woman, um, my body, my choice. My question to your guest is, does the fetus in the womb, it's a two-part question, have any rights? Because obviously if you were in a car accident and you were drunk and you hit a woman that was pregnant. So the first part is, does the fetus have rights? And what's the second part, Simon? And the question is, is the fetus property? All right, thank you for that question. And Amy, how would you respond to those questions? Um, I can't, you know, everyone in America has the right to their opinions about a variety of things. But what we do know is that abortion is a critical part of every contemporary modern healthcare system. And there are a huge variety of reasons that people need abortion care. Everything from birth control failure to medical reasons to socioeconomic reasons. And for true equity in our society, it is critical that people have access to the full spectrum of reproductive health care. Everything from sex ed to contraception, to abortion care. And I know that majority of Americans support that. And it it is really, really critical that we are out here making sure that the people's voice on this is heard and that religious doctrine or personal feelings about pregnancy do not trump what is necessary and what the people want. Well, thank you for the question, Simon. And I want to remind people that our guest is Amy Weintraub, Reproductive Rights Program Director for Progress Florida. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. Later on in the show, we're going to hear some of the oral arguments that brought up some of these issues in, the, in front of the Florida Supreme Court uh, that was just a few weeks ago. But first, I want to read this text message that comes in from Wendy, who asks, where can I go to get my petition or how? Is there an online form or some other way that people can, can go to get this? Oh, what a great question. Thank you. Um, it's really important that people know how to participate in this petition gathering process. And FloridiansProtectingFreedom.org, that's Floridians Protecting, I'm so sorry, 
floridiansprotectingfreedom.com. floridiansprotectingfreedom.com is the website that folks can go to 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 complete the petition form and then print it out and then sign it. The address to mail, where to mail the form is a Sarasota PO box. It's on the form itself. Um, they do require these forms to be, you know, hard copy. So folks do have to mail it in. They can also drop it off at a, a, a local hub. Every, almost every county in Florida has a hub. So, and that's available on the website, floridiansprotectingfreedom.com. Um, the map of where all the hubs are. Forms can also be picked up if folks don't have printers. They can be picked up at those hubs as well. And let me ask you about uh, this news that I was reading in Florida politics yesterday. They were reporting that the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is criticizing Congressmember Maria Alvira Salazar over her support for a bill that would limit access to an abortion pill, Mifepristone. It was part of negotiations over avoiding a government shutdown, the DCCC. DCCC thinks that Salazar's South Florida congressional seat is one that they can flip next election. You don't have to talk about the politics of, of that, but just the, this point about where um, access to Mifepristone was kind of being negotiated as part of uh, a deal when it came to avoiding the government shutdown. Oh, yeah. It's again, again, an example of, of reproductive health care being used as a as a pawn in these political games and uh, it's you know it's an outrage there's no other health care product or service that is used in these negotiations the way that abortion care abortion medicine is mifepristone is a critical drug um, that is needed and chosen by more than half of the people patients um, accessing abortion care instead of surgical abortion. And there are a lot of reasons that people would prefer abortion medication over a procedure, and they should have the right to pick that. Further, there are more and more people accessing abortion pills outside of the traditional American healthcare system. They are ordering these pills online, and there are safe and supported ways of doing that. And, and people should be able to access this care legally. Now, the next question I want to ask you is about these pregnancy centers. Now, the state calls them crisis pregnancy centers. You call them something else. What are they and why are you concerned about them? Um, yes. So anti-abortion centers, I call them that because that's what their mission is, is to prevent abortion, to talk people out of, of getting getting abortions and, and you know influencing them to continue their pregnancies. They often set up right beside actual women's health care centers that offer abortion care. A great example of this is in right in our region in Polk County and Lakeland. Lakeland Women's Health Center, a, a great comprehensive health care center, the only, um, the only doctor's office that provides abortions in all of Polk County. Is so they're located on a, a, a commercial street. And guess who opened right beside them? A place called options for women and they open right beside them in the hopes of kind of tricking people into thinking that that's the actual health care center not lakeland women's health care center well that's just one of their mo's they do all kinds of things to trick people into having to stay like they'll have people change um, into an exam gown in one room and move them to another room so they'll be separated from their belongings making it harder for them to leave 
even though they aren't necessarily providing actual medical care. So anyway, yes, these places exist to talk women out of out of getting abortions. And the 15 week abortion ban, I'm sorry, the six week abortion ban bill that passed this past spring came with a funding measure, $25 million to go to these entities that again, do not provide actual healthcare services, but in fact, you know, are, are trying to deny people access to their care. It is just, a, it's a, it's just ridiculous, especially when you consider all of the other social, actual bona fide um, social health care, social and health care services that are going underfunded. All right. I'm going to read a couple of emails and texts that came in, and then we'll go to David in Sarasota in just a second. First of all, I know someone was a, someone else was asking about the website to download the information or the form to fill out regarding the ballot initiative. And again, that's FloridiansProtectingFreedom.com. Also, David writes in, he says, I find it hypocritical that these politicians claim that they are against abortion when many of them have ordered abortions for their own mistresses. And David says, wake up fools. And then he says, uh, he, he makes a suggestion about Matt Gates and his um, underage mistresses that, that I've probably repeated enough ab- about. I don't need to go any further, but thanks David for that email. Um, and so let's, let's hear now from David in Sarasota. This is a different David. Hi, David, what would you like to say? I think you got my, my same question. I was the one that asked about uh being able to sign a petition to get that on a, a constitutional amendment passed. But uh, thank you anyways, and it's a great show. Okay, thanks so much, David. Bye. Bye. So, Amy, I think we'll probably wrap up this segment so I can play some of the Florida State Supreme Court arguments that happened just a few weeks ago for the rest of the show, but people are still welcome to call in. I want to thank you so much for coming back on to WMNF's Tuesday Cafe today, Amy. Such a pleasure, Sean. Thank you. Thanks. I'm glad you could come on. Well, as I said, we are going to play for the rest of the hour. We're going to hear some of your comments, but also I'm going to uh, hear, we're going to hear from the Florida Supreme Court. That was Amy Weintraub, Reproductive Rights Program Director for Progress Florida. And she's also a member of WMNF's Community Advisory Board. So I want to thank you, thank her for that service as well. So here is audio from the Florida Supreme Court. Last week, they were hearing uh, from attorneys on both sides about Florida's 15-week abortion law. And the first clip that we're going to hear is Whitney L. White. She's an ACLU of Florida attorney. Before this clip, she was asked by Justice Jamie Grosshands about why Planned Parenthood and its doctors and clients had standing to sue the state over the ban on abortions after 15 weeks. Justice John Coriel asked whether the abortion restrictions actually hinder the plaintiffs. And then the main question of the day centered on the meaning of a 1980 amendment to Florida's constitution that protects privacy. The state is arguing that it doesn't protect things like medical decisions. So here's Whitney White, a staff attorney with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project with questions from Justice Meredith Sasso, Jamie Grosshands, and Chief Justice Carlos Muniz. If I could return uh, to the constitutional question, um, there are three main reasons that the court should Uh, not accept the state's invitation to overrule precedent and should affirm it instead. The first is the plain text of the privacy clause itself. It uses broad language and it was adopted by voters in 1980 at a time when the established meaning of the privacy clause's terms unequivocally included uh, the right to decide for oneself whether or not to continue a pregnancy. 
Second, in 2012, voters were presented with an opportunity um, to overrule abortion precedents by constitutional amendment. Can you in talk about the plain text? You, you, you present just kind of a textual breakdown, dictionary definitions and that sort of thing. And so if we're looking at the text in a vacuum, why does it not um, connote a negative implication? It's the right to be let alone, free from governmental intrusion. And how does that square in the abortion context when it seems like your clients are seeking a right to procure something? Uh, so I think that abortion is unambiguously covered by the plain text um, uh, language of the Privacy Clause. The Privacy Clause refers to a right to be let alone and free from government interference into a person's private life. And private life includes not just private information, but private activities and private decisions. Um, the trial court specifically found in this case deeply personal and private reasons that individuals need access to abortion care. And there's no basis in the text to exclude a decision as deeply personal and private as the decision of whether to continue a pregnancy from the otherwise broad protections for freedom from interference in private life. Um, I would also note that under this court's precedence in cases such as voting restoration amendment, as part of the plain text analysis, this court has looked to contemporaneous case law interpreting the terms in a constitutional amendment to look for the established meaning of those terms at the time that they were adopted. And here in 1980, um, the, the general right of privacy and the specific terms used in the privacy clause were unequivocally, um, unequivocally had an established meaning that included um, a right of an individual to decide for themselves whether or not to continue a pregnancy. That established meaning is part of the plain text, um, and indeed the state agrees that looking to this sort of contemporaneous case law evidence is an important part of the constitutional analysis, and that's at pages 10 and 26 of their brief. How would you respond to the fact that there is really virtually no sort of attention given to this subject in 1980? Um, you know, the state and um, you know all the extra briefs filed have put a lot of emphasis on what was in a newspaper, uh, what people were talking about, what the legislature was talking about at the time, um, but. Your brief doesn't have that, uh, very, very many supporting uh, documents to show that that was the understanding of any voter in the state in 1980. Um, abortion's always been a divisive issue. It was divisive in 1980. Why, why is there not more that emphasizes your view of what that term meant at the time? Um, so, first, Your Honor, I do think that the historical evidence is consistent with plaintiff's reading of the Privacy Clause, but I would also underscore that this Court has repeatedly emphasized that when considering a question of constitutional interpretation, the plain text is paramount, and that evidence of individual subjective intent of drafters cannot override um, otherwise broad plain text well, of the, the amendment. The, the plain text has an original public meaning, and I guess what Justice Grosshan's question goes to is, if the original public meaning of that test of that text included abortion you would expect to see positions from Planned Parenthood and National Right to Life debating each other about it in 1980 and yet we don't really see that how do you explain that absence you know, I think there are a lot of reasons why um, uh, why individuals, for example, individual legislators um, who were not supportive of abortion rights might have nonetheless um, supported uh, the Privacy Clause. Um, 
there could have been a general acceptance that Roe was the law of the land at the time, and so the privacy clause um, in incorporating that standard wouldn't necessarily change things practically. But, but you don't even see that. You don't even see op-eds saying, well, this is about Roe. Right, but I think, Your Honor, um, I think my point is that um, the fact that it's impossible to really understand what exactly was going through individuals' heads at the time is one of the reasons that this court has cautioned against looking to that sort of um, evidence first and foremost. Um, but I, again, I do think that the, the historical record here is consistent with plaintiffs' understanding. There's evidence in the historical record that legislators were fully informed and fully on notice that the terms of the privacy clause were broad, that they would incorporate existing um, federal privacy rights and that that included decisional autonomy rights such as abortion. Likewise, in the public record in terms of media coverage, um, both opponents and supporters of the amendment repeatedly described it as um, being broad, as incorporating potentially incorporating decisional autonomy rights, um, as incorporating rights that already existed under federal law. And there was contemporaneous coverage in the news um, of a number of different abortion issues that repeatedly identified the federal right to abortion as rooted in the right to privacy. So there's plenty of evidence that is consistent with the original understanding and the original established meaning of the privacy clause to incorporate abortion rights. That was Whitney White, a staff attorney with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. She was questioned by several Florida Supreme Court justices. This happened last month in, the, in its challenge to Florida's law banning abortions after 15 weeks. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF Tampa, and we're listening to the audio from the Florida Supreme Court, and I'd like to hear what you have to say about it as well. We're broadcasting live on October 3rd, and you can email us at dj at wmnf.org. You can text 813-433-0885. Or you can call in at 813-239-9663. And uh, so we heard uh, the, the ACLU's attorney arguing in, uh, in support of the privacy clause covering things like medical decisions. But now we're going to hear the attorney for the state, Henry Whitaker. He is arguing that Florida's constitutional right to privacy does not include abortion health care and is limited to really just kind of uh, ideas and, and, uh, and documents and things like that. Your Honor, we haven't taken issue with this court's precedence on that, which uh, consistent with the Page case from 2020, um, currently uh, hold that standing is not a jurisdictional issue. It's a waivable issue. Uh, we have no quarrel with that, and, we, and uh, we haven't presented any other arguments. I understand that, that I think the Secretary of State in another case uh, uh, presented a different view, but we haven't taken that on here, and we would ask the court to apply its established precedent on that. And the one thing I, I would, I think that's a complicated question, and, and I, I would urge the court to steer clear of that uh, in this case. We do think that the court can assume for the sake of argument <coughs> that the plaintiffs have standing here, and instead Reach, reach the merits. And I would just ask the, say that that I think is what the court should do. I mean, after the Supreme Court decision, the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Dobbs, the only thing that is between the legislature and regulating abortion in the way they would like are this court's precedents. And obviously, you have a 15-week law in front of you. As plaintiff notes, there's a six-week law right around the corner. And I think the continuing vitality of this court's precedence on abortion is 
an issue that cries out for resolution by this court on the merits. And I think we, and Chief Justice Meneas, you're certainly correct. The state hasn't raised these arguments before, I think. I think that's correct. But I do think it's fair to say we've raised substantial reasons why there is, in fact, no abortion right under the Florida Constitution that haven't been presented to this court before. For example, one of the pieces of evidence that's never been presented to this court, as far as I am aware, is that dozens of the legislators who put the privacy amendment before the people in the 1978 and 79 legislative sessions voted to convene a pro-life, a national pro-life convention to add a pro-life amendment to the federal constitution. The same legislature that put the privacy amendment before the people enacted abortion restrictions that were later struck down in the name of the very amendment that they asked the people to ratify. And the lead sponsor of the privacy amendment in the Senate explicitly disavowed on the floor of the Senate that it had anything to do with abortion. And I do think that that is objective evidence that the people never would have understood that what they were ratifying had anything whatsoever to do with abortion. How should we, and I think that that's all important, but at the same time, you know, in 89, you know, we had Ben Overton, who was the chair of the CRC in 78, who said that abortion was one of the issues subsumed within privacy. We have Ehrlich and I can't remember, basically all the justices who were much closer in time than we were, and they weren't a bunch of, you know, William O. Douglas types. I mean, you don't get the sense that it's an ideological thing. It just seems to have been taken as a given that they believe that that was, you know, the baseline. How, you know, how are we in a better position than they were to understand kind of what the common understanding of what the right was? Your Honor, I think that Justice Overton seemed to be a smart man. I think he was probably a good guy. I don't think that his opinion, with all respect, reflected how the people reasonably understood what the words of the amendment meant. And he may have had, I don't think that Ben Overton's or John Mills' secret understanding of what the privacy amendment meant is what's controlling. And I'm not sure that Justice Overton had before him all of the evidence that we have marshaled in that regard. Can you talk about compelling interest? Because it seems like that is, to me, it seems like that should be a moving target. And we also have a long tradition in Florida, which I don't think that you guys have emphasized that much in your briefing here, of this court almost taking kind of, at least rhetorically, adopting almost like a, you know, a Thayer-type position of, you know, things have to be, you know, beyond a reasonable doubt, unconstitutional, that sort of thing. You know, is that something, I know it's kind of touched on in your brief, the compelling interest part. I mean, could you elaborate on that? Sure, and I would just say that we very much embrace the Thayer idea that an act of the legislature should not be struck down unless it is clearly unconstitutional. We rely on that principle in the brief, and I think that is something that goes into the calculus about whether to overrule precedent. That inquiry has to be done against the backdrop of that rule of deference to the legislature. And I do think that we would win under compelling interest as well, and that you can certainly consider 
changing circumstances. That's the attorney for the state of Florida, Henry Whitaker, and we are listening to audio from the Florida Supreme Court's oral arguments last month regarding Florida's 15-week abortion ban. This is Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan. We're broadcasting live on October 3rd from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. And I want to hear what you think about it. We just heard the attorney from the state saying that the privacy amendment to Florida's constitution does not have anything to do with medical decisions like a, uh, the right to an abortion or, or the keeping the state out of that decision. Whereas we heard the attorney from the ACLU saying that the privacy clause has always been interpreted by the Florida State Supreme Court as specifically um, uh, giving people in Florida a right to access to abortion. So what do you think? Do you agree? Which argument do you agree with? What do you think about the uh, potential for uh, a new constitutional amendment being on the ballot that would protect the rights of, uh, of people to choose an abortion? And what do you think about the arguments you've heard so far about what the privacy amendment means in Florida's constitution? So let's listen again to a very short clip here from the, uh, the attorney for the state. His name is uh, Henry Whitaker. And he is seeming to suggest that if the court overturns Florida's 15-week abortion law, that it would open the way up for other things like assisted suicide. So take a listen to what he's saying here and uh, see if you, if you can in, understand this logic and uh, what you think about it. So here is Henry Whitaker, the attorney for the state. Let me quickly read a, a text message that just came in. And uh, this is from the area code 727. Thank you for the show. I'm in my 70s and I fought this once for Roe. If it weren't for Planned Parenthood, I wouldn't have any, had any health care, much less access to birth control. I will spread this website to all I can. Then we can push for equal rights. And the website that uh, this person is referring to is for the amendment to the Constitution, which is FloridiansProtectingFreedom.com. So let's, let's listen to this shorter clip from Henry Whitaker, an attorney for the state of Florida. Florida, speaking before in oral arguments before the Florida Supreme Court last month. One thing I would like to stress about compelling interest is that we've obviously urged a, a rethinking of the court's privacy clause precedents, even taking them as given though. I mean, this court has not rigidly applied means and scrutiny under the privacy clause. It's not really, as this court has applied it over the years, strict scrutiny uh, in the in the strict sense, if you will. I mean, even as early as Winfield in 1985, which upheld under strict scrutiny a subpoena by DBPR of bank records uh, in, the, in the context of a gambling investigation, it said that strata satisfied strict scrutiny. When this, when this court in the early 90s was faced with, privacy, with three different privacy clause challenges to statutory rape laws, this court relied on strict scrutiny, and it was fair to say a relaxed form of strict scrutiny, to say that the state has a compelling interest in uh, advancing the welfare of, of children, although the, the statutory rape statute lost in one of those cases. Uh, but, but, and I think that, that, that and, I, and, and so too with the, the court's assisted suicide case in McIver in 1997, where this court upheld the legislature's statute criminalizing assisted suicide under a form of strict scrutiny that I think it's fair to say is not as strict as it's understood to be in many other contexts. And here we think that the state has a compelling interest at all stages of pregnancy in preserving life. And whatever you think 
about the status of an unborn life at any, st any particular stage of pregnancy, it is a life in some sense and is unquestionably extinguished by the abortion decision. And the legislature was entitled to take that into account in legislating. And I understand the plaintiffs have raised substantial concerns about women who need to have abortions, suffer barriers to getting abortions, and terrible things. And the legislature weighed and balanced those concerns against the interest in preserving life. And that kind of weighing and balancing is precisely the kind of thing that should be done by the legislature and not this court. And that's what we would ask this court to do. Well, that's the attorney for the state, Henry Whitaker, speaking last month at the state Supreme Court during oral arguments regarding Florida's 15-week abortion ban. Groups like Planned Parenthood are challenging that law. It's a new law, uh, newish. It's a, about a year and a half old now, I think. Um, and it is, um, it's in effect, but it's being challenged by these groups. And if they lose, if the state wins and the 15-week abortion ban is uh, not overturned by the state Supreme Court, a newer law, which will ban abortions after six weeks, will go into effect. That passed earlier this year. You're listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, and we're broadcasting from the studios of WMNF in Tampa. Uh, the rest of the show will be a, a really interesting if we can get a conversation going. So what do you think about what you've heard so far during the oral arguments from our earlier guest, who is Amy uh, Weinberg, uh, Amy Weintraub, that is, I'm sorry, um, who is with uh, Progress Florida. And what are your thoughts about what you're hearing during these arguments? Does the privacy clause in the Florida Constitution guarantee a right to the state not interfering in medical decisions? Or, or do you think that it doesn't have anything to do with, with that because of the history of when it was passed and so forth? Let me read a little bit more from The Guardian about the, the kind of the his, recent history about abortion in Florida. Abortion rights supporters in Florida say the, these two laws, the, the, the six-week and 15-week laws, violate the explicit privacy protections found in the state constitutions. The 15-week ban was passed by Republicans in Florida in April of 2022, months before the U.S. Supreme Court ended the federal right to abortion. That same month, a judge revived a 2015 state law that mandated that patients wait 24 hours between getting an initial consultation for an abortion and undergoing the procedure. And uh, ahead of this hearing, we had we, the the Guardian spoke with a Jacksonville abortion provider with Physicians for Reproductive Health, who said that she felt nervous and frustrated, fearing that a court ruling would make it impossible for her patients to receive what is often life-saving care. And roughly half of her patients in Jacksonville come to Florida from states like Georgia, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, even Texas. So it's this uh, decision by the Florida Supreme Court will have big implications, of course, in Florida, but also around the South. We have a little bit more audio to hear from the the from the ACLU, a Florida lawyer who is representing the Planned Parenthood and affiliates. And uh, we hope that you call in. If, if you're listening on October 3rd and you'd like to weigh in on this conversation, the number to call in is 813-239-9663. You can text us at 813-433-0885 or you can email dj at wmnf.org. Here's a text that comes in from Bubba. He says, why are we wasting taxpayer money on um, on people who are shady like Whitaker. I hate spending money defending useless laws is what Bubba suggests. But Bubba, so um, 
you know, you say that it's uh, wasting taxpayer money, but it sounds like that Whitaker is going to end up being on the, the, the winning side of this, just based on what we're hearing from these Supreme Court justices. They seem skeptical of the arguments that the ACLU lawyer is putting forward, and they seem supportive of the arguments that Whitaker, who is arguing for the state, is putting forward. So um, you, you call it wasting taxpayer money. It's very likely that his side is going to end up winning. So I'm just putting that out there. Let's go to Alfred in Lutz. Alfred, what would you like to say? You're on the air. Yes, I'm an older person that was, was a voter in 1980. And I would just like to say that the feeling at the time was that this was a very broad interpretation and, a, and a, a way for people to have a guarantee that they would have those rights. And that's not just the right to abortion, but the right to many forms of privacy. And abortion was part of it. It was, it was the belief at the time that that was part of your right to be able to terminate a pregnancy. As a woman, you should have that decision. Not a man's decision, it's a woman's decision. And it's an individual decision. I'm trying to say that they were trying to say that the feelings at the time, when people didn't know this, that they were voting for this and that. But I think that is totally incorrect. Thanks for that, Alfred. I appreciate that insight. Um, I'm cutting you off because your your car audio sounds a little bit grainy, but um, I think that's a really important insight. Uh, uh, I'm admitting this here. I In 1980, I lived in Florida, but I was certainly way too uh, young to, have, to vote or to pay attention to what was happening around that vote. I have no idea what the atmosphere was like at the time. So I'm glad you, you pointed that out, Alfred, that, that, that people felt that it was like a, a, a just a broad, rights, that that's what the right to privacy was meant when they voted for that in the Constitution and added it to the Constitution in 1980. I appreciate that. Thank you for that insight um, and uh, thanks for calling. And we're going to go to Carl and Dunedin in just a bit. I don't think we're quite ready to take his call yet, but I'm saying that to encourage him to hang on the line while we listen to Whitney White again. She's a staff attorney with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project. She wrapped up her argument against Florida's law that bans abortion procedures after 15 weeks. By question, she was questioned by Chief Justice Carlos Muniz, who you'll hear is taking a strong stand for Florida's 15-week abortion law. Here is Whitney White. Uh, thank you. There are a few points that I want to um, try to respond to, uh, and I'll try to move relatively quickly. Uh, the first is there was a question about what um, tools the court uses when looking to understand what voters understood. And the voting restoration amendment case um, provides a clear example of that. Part of what the court did um, in determining what the ordinary understanding was likely to be was looking to contemporaneous case law um, as part of that plain text and ordinary meaning analysis. Here, the contemporaneous case law in 1980 unequivocally provided protection um, for the right to abortion as part of privacy rights and the privacy clause terms. I would also underscore that the question here in light of the stare decisis analysis is whether the prior conclusion that abortion was included um, uh, was clearly erroneous. And, um, and here, in light of the plain text evidence and in light of the established meaning in 1980, it was at minimum reasonable for the prior justices of this court to include that it was. And that counsels in favor of this court adhering to precedent. Um, in fact, 
not only was the TW court unanimous in concluding that the privacy clause protected abortion at least as strongly as under Roe, no justice of this court has subsequently written a decision calling that conclusion into question. And I think the weight of those considered judicial judgments provides clear evidence that the prior conclusions were indeed reasonable and fall far short of the clearly erroneous standard. I also want to address the state's argument to limit the clause solely to informational privacy. This is a completely atextual reading of what the privacy clause said. The state would have this court read it as if it protected private information from government snooping, and that is simply not the words that the privacy clause uses. In cases like voting restoration amendment, the court refused to narrowly construe the phrase terms of sentence to exclude legal financial obligations where the text itself doesn't do so, and that's precisely the case we have here. Nothing in the text excludes decisional autonomy rights like abortion from the otherwise broad protections. The state mentioned the second sentence, and I just want to underscore that voting restoration amendment also dispenses with that argument. That case made clear that a specific term only narrows a more general term where it precedes it, and that is not the case with the privacy clause. I want to speak for a moment also about the implications of the state's argument that the clause is limited to informational privacy. As the questions recognized, this would have a destabilizing impact on numerous other areas of this court's privacy jurisprudence. This court has repeatedly applied the privacy clause outside of the informational privacy context in areas such as parental rights and medical decision making, and many of those cases did rely specifically on the first and foremost on the privacy clause under the Florida Constitution, not under the federal protections, and moreover, this court has repeatedly held that the privacy clause is broader and more protective of those rights than federal law, so the Florida Constitution's protections for decisional autonomy are not at all duplicative of federal law, and if this court were to accept the state's argument, it would have a destabilizing effect on all of those other rights that this court has held to be independently protected by the Florida Constitution. With respect to standing, I wanted to note that the state referred to the Kowalski decision, and I want to underscore that that decision specifically emphasized that in certain contexts, in particular where a third party's rights are harmed by the direct enforcement of a law against somebody else, in those circumstances, the third party standing inquiry is more forgiving. So if anything, Kowalski makes clear that in a circumstance like this, where the providers themselves are the ones that are directly subject to HB 5's severe criminal penalties and have a clear stake in the outcome of this case, the third party standing inquiry, if anything, is more forgiving, and the trial court's findings that plaintiffs satisfy it is more than sufficient to affirm. I lastly just want to address the state's suggestion that upholding privacy rights for abortion here would open the door for other things like infanticide, and frankly, 
there's no reason for the court to be concerned about that. This is not a brave new world. Abortion was a fundamental, recognized as a fundamental privacy right in Florida for decades. It has never been the case that that has led to a free-for-all of according privacy right protections to other to, to criminal acts like infanticide. There's also a clear basis for this court to distinguish because um, the privacy clause was unequivocally included in the established meaning, and that is simply not the case for these other extreme hypotheticals that the state has put forward. So for all can the I, reasons- Sorry, can I ask you about Dobbs before you finish? So you're asking us to essentially take a whole class of human beings and put them outside of the protection of the law, essentially in the sense that if the legislature wants to protect those human beings, they are precluded by the Constitution of Florida from doing that. And at, at the end of the day, the argument as to why that would be right would be based on a, a sort of legal meaning kind of understanding of right of privacy. We now know that you know, the same entity that created that understanding of the right of privacy has told us that it, it was a mirage. They've eviscerated it. Should, should She's talking we about the US take Supreme that Court. into account when, again, when we're talking about the, you know, the, the weighty interests at stake on both sides and the fact that this is a sort of democratic legitimacy type issue, um, should it matter to us that the entire foundation of the asserted right here, essentially the Supreme Court, which created the thing in the first place, has now said that that it was egregiously wrong from the, from day one. I mean, should that matter to us? Uh, so, no, Your Honor, um, and there are two points that I want to raise. Um, first, um, I think I want to underscore that what would in fact be unique here is allowing HB5 to stand because there is no other context in which this court can held, has held that the state can constitutionally force an individual to take on increased and serious medical risks and harm for the purported benefit of others. But that is precisely what HB5 forces pregnant women to do. Um, the protection for privacy rights in this court's precedent do balance those interests and recognize the state's interests um, in, fe in fetal life after uh, the point of viability. With respect to Dobbs specifically, nothing in Dobbs, on its face the court repeatedly emphasized this, nothing in the Dobbs decision displaces pre-existing state constitutional for protections for abortion that were more um, protective than the federal law. And Dobbs repeatedly makes clear that indeed that's a core part of our federalist system, that states are, are, are free to accord that level of protection, and that is precisely um, what Floridians have done here. Um, so for those reasons and all the other reasons stated in our brief, we ask the court to reverse the first DCA and reinstate the trial court's injunction. That was Whitney White, a staff attorney with the ACLU's Reproductive Freedom Project, wrapping up her argument against Florida's law banning abortion procedures after 15 weeks. She was questioned there by Chief Justice Carlos Muniz. Uh, you heard him ask about um, whether... Florida, her interpretation of the Florida Constitution means that what he called a whole class of human beings, of course, he's referring here to, to here as unborn um, fetuses, is not protected, not allowed to be protected because of that privacy clause. And she rebutted that. Also, um, she was rebutting claims that it might open the way to infanticide um, and so on. I want to thank our guest, Amy Weintraub. And our phone screener, John Dunn. You've been listening to Tuesday Cafe. I'm Sean Canan, News and Public Affairs Director here at WMNF Tampa. 
Tomorrow, we kick off our WMNF Fall Fun Drive with Shelley Reback's show Midpoint and Democracy Now! We hope that you support WMNF's fantastic music and news programming with your donation. You're listening to WMNF Tampa. Live.